I'm Neil Barton, a private investigator in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Background Report. I don't know about you, but I've always been curious about Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. It's hard to find any consistent, reliable information about what happened to the guy, but I do know the world's foremost expert on Hoffa and his murder, Dan Maldea. Dan is a veteran investigative journalist and author of several books, starting with The Hoffa Wars in 1978. He's 6'4", and his hands look like they could crush rocks. He's the quintessential tough guy reporter, not because he wanted to be or planned it that way. I had lunch with Dan at a Chinese restaurant in Bethesda, Maryland, and asked him about his journey. Because we were in a restaurant, there is some background noise, and I apologize for that, but our voices are crystal clear, and you can still understand everything that was said. I got started investigating the Teamsters through a series of bad luck events, which have turned into what is now a, God, 44-year career. I was a graduate student at Kent State. I was also assistant director of a federal poverty agency, and our agency got shook down by what turned out to be a mob guy. And I was naive back then. I thought Elliot Ness and the Untouchables had cleaned up the mob back in the 30s. And seeing that they existed, I started investigating them. A newspaper that serviced the black community in northeastern Ohio asked me to be their token white guy to write about whatever I wanted to, and so I started writing about organized crime. And then I was introduced to a, a Teamster guy, a leader of the Teamster rank-and-file reform movement, and he ed- basically educated me about corruption in a Teamsters union. So I did an eight-part series on the Teamsters and their pension fund with the mafia, and then that led to my getting to know a lot of people. But at that point, no one really cared about Hoffman, the Teamsters, there was a three-part series in the Wall Street Journal that was done by a guy named John Quitney, who ended up being like a big brother to me in this business. He found the same thing, just nobody seemed to care. But then a week after John's three-part series came out in the journal, Hoffa disappeared, and then everybody cared about this, because that was a huge story at the time, in the summer of 1975. Was Hoffa the original founder of the Teamsters? Was no. He- no, he was like... I think there were like three or four presidents before him, at least three. He was a leader of the rank. He was a, he was kind of a working class hero, working out of Detroit, same city that Walter Ruther was working out of. You had two potentially great union leaders working in the same town, in different industries. Hoff in the trucking industry and Ruther in the automotive automotive industry. Automobile industry. I asked Dan how Hoffa ended up getting entangled with underworld figures. Hoffa got desperate. He was challenged by a rival CIO uh, union, uh, which was run by Denny Lewis, who was the brother of John L. Lewis, the head of the CIO. This is obviously before they merged with the AFL CIO. And so Hoffa, unable to deal with these raiders, these CIO raiders, wound up turning to the mafia for support to help. Not, not organize workers against stubborn employers, but to try to herd workers into supporting his union. And that pact between Hoffa and the mafia, where the mafia ran off the CIO raiders, was really what turned Hoffa from a potentially great union leader like Walter Ruther to really nothing more than a labor racketeer. Once you cross that line and you start and you accept help from the mafia, is there any turning back? I'm trying to think of cases in which, when they put their hooks in you, you can get away from that. I would assume there's examples where people have done work with mob guys on a case-by-case basis. 
but it's hard to do. Once they get their hooks in you, they, they're going to fight hard to keep you in their, in their stable. And they're going to try to use you. And, and even later on in life, if you are, if you were once with them and then you made a deal to depart, then, you know, that, that could be used against you. Was it just the Genovese crime family that he was working with, or was it other crime families as well? The Genovese crime family is in New York. Hoffa was out of Detroit. He was pretty much beholden to the Detroit family as well as to a guy named down in New Orleans named Carlos Marcello. He was very close to Carlos down there. He worked with the Genovese family. He worked with the Bonanno crime family. He worked with the Gambinos. He worked with the Lucchese's. He worked with the Colombos. He worked with the five families. In New York, he worked with Chicago. You know, Hoffo had created in the Teamsters Union a very centralized system where he centralized all decision-making in his own hands. And as a result of that, mob guys had to come to him to make deals. And so they did. When Frank Fitzsimmons took over the union later on, after Hoffa was in jail, Fitzsimmons became more popular because he decentralized the union. And he gave, he gave power to the fiefdoms around the Teamsters Union to the various vice presidents who would cut their own deals with the local mob guys within their own jurisdictions. Everything wasn't centralized in one man's heads as it was under Hoffa. So when Hoffa, when his prison sentence was commuted, by President Nixon in 1971, December 1971, the mob really didn't want him back because they were getting along with the local guy from the Teamsters Union, again, within their own jurisdiction. They didn't have to deal with the centralized guy who may or may not be driving a hard bargain with them. So there wasn't a lot of excitement about bringing back Hoffman to as president of the Teamsters Union. When he was released from prison, there was a restriction on his commutation that he not return to union politics until he was like 80 years old or something like that. Oh, really? I thought it was like until 1980, until he was 80 years so old. 70. It would have been 70 until he returned to when he was 70 years old. Yeah. Can you tell me about Alan Dorfman, what his relationship was Alan to the Dorfman, Alan Dorfman was the son of Paul Dorfman. Or, I'm sorry, he was the stepson. Alan Dorfman was the stepson of Paul Dorfman. Paul Dorfman was a labor racketeer out of Chicago. He was the head of the Chicago Waste Handlers Union. When Hoffa started making moves into the Midwest, outside of Detroit, it was Paul Dorfman who really helped him out. But then, as a quid pro quo, when Hoffa started to expand his power throughout the central states, he created a health and welfare fund. Dorfman and his stepson, Alan Dorfman, created a, an insurance company called Union Casualty, which received the exclusive contract from Hoffa to do health and welfare funds. And even though Alan Dorfman had no previous experience in the insurance industry, he got this huge contract, he and his stepfather. When Hoffa created the Teamsters Pension Fund, the Central States Pension Fund, in 1956, Again, the contract went to Union Casualty and to the Dorfmans. So it was kind of a quid pro quo that Hoffa had with the Dorfmans, giving them this very lucrative insurance business, which made them millions and millions of dollars, much of which I'm sure wound up in mob guys' pockets. Alan Dorfman ended up getting in some kind of trouble with the law, right? He ended up on he trial? Was, he was indicted and convicted in a scheme to influence the vote of Senator Howard Cannon of Nevada on the trucking deregulation bill. And as a result of his conviction, he was viewed as a potential informant. And he knew so much 
that the powers that be decided they just couldn't keep him out there. And so he was murdered in January 1983, I guess it was. So that threat of Dorfman flipping and turning state's evidence never occurred. During his trial, didn't you have a brief encounter with him did, in the hallway yeah, or I, something like that? I, well, I saw, in fact, I was with, he was with Erwin uh, uh, Weiner, who was the guy he was with when he was murdered. Erwin Weiner was the chief bail bondsman for the Teamsters Union, and I was at the Gaylor Products trial in Chicago. I was just a kid, really. I was only 25 years old. I saw Dorfman and Erwin Weiner talking, so I went up and interrupted you know, intruded, interrupted their conversation. And I was asking him about how he viewed himself and, you know, how he dealt with all these matters of that he was a corrupt guy and everything else. And he sort of compared himself to a banker, you know, somebody and, you know, just another employer who's in a position to, you know, hire people and to, uh, and had a responsibility of managing wealth. Mm-hmm. He just viewed himself as just another average businessman. He was polite with you, right? He was congenial. Oh, he was very nice. Very nice. In fact, that when I, the night it was announced, Hoffa disappeared. John Quitney from the Wall Street Journal and I went, we came up with this cockamamie theory that Hoffa was in Eagle River, Wisconsin, at a lodge owned by the Dorfman family. So we went up there. There was an adventure attached to this. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but we went up there, and I got into the lodge area at some expense. I got bit by a dog and everything else. Anyway, I was taken in. I got caught. I was at gunpoint. I was brought into the at, into the lodge area, and I met Rose Dorfman, who was Paul Dorfman's widow and Alan Dorfman's mother. And Jerry Weiner was there too, who was Irv Weiner's son. And they said what was going on, and I flashed my student ID card to him from Kent State, saying I was there looking, you know, writing about Jimmy Hoffa. So they said, I guess we better expect this. I couldn't have been nicer, actually. That was my, my my wild goose chase looking for Hoffa, but I've had many since then. Over the past 40, 43 years, I've had many wild goose chases looking for Hoffa. John Quinty, uh, at the time, you wrote a pretty humorous description of your guys' adventure. He described you showing up with snorkeling gear. and <laughs> I had know. to go in underwater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In 1974, while staying with a friend in Chicago and attending Dorfman's trial, Dan received an anonymous call from a tipster. The tipster promised to give him damaging information about Dorfman. They agreed to meet at a bar later on. When Dan showed up at the bar, he was jumped and brutally beaten instead. He woke up hours later, soaked in his own urine and blood. You were brutally assaulted at, at, at a beat, bar. Yeah, my ass kicked. Yeah, yeah. My ass kicked. Outside a bar. You know, from behind. He snuck up pretty much, right? I heard two car doors slam. Yeah. It was broad daylight. I wasn't even afraid. It was broad daylight. It was like about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Public place. And I heard a couple of car doors slam behind me, and I kind of sensed two guys coming up behind me. And then the next thing I knew, I was on the front seat of my car. And it was it was early evening, I guess. So they really, they really banged me up pretty good on that. I had to lay up for several weeks on that one. It was tough. You didn't suffer any permanent injuries, fortunately? Well, not physically. To your pride, I understand that. Well, I I mean, when you get hit from behind by two guys who are probably pros, they were, I think they were sent there to do this. There's, there's a whole reason why I believe that they, the evidence is that they were sent there to teach me a lesson. You think it was a message from Alan Dorfman? Uh, I had tried to take some information that wasn't 
I wasn't really allowed to take. I think that was, uh, I'm not going to go into detail on okay. that. I had, I had made a mistake. I made a mistake, and I got caught. Okay. And I, I think I was punished for that mistake. That's what I think happened. I don't go into a lot of detail on that in the memoir. It taught me that, um, you know, I was not invulnerable, which I thought I was at the time. I'm not going to be humiliated by getting my ass kicked by two guys. I mean, I'm not, you know. But it was, it was in a way, it was humiliating in that I had to lay up for so long in order to get well. You describe that in your memoirs as a life-changing moment it was, for you. It really was. Can, can I, became, you, but I, I changed the way I looked at the world and stuff. You know, a lot of people, after that happened to them, would have said, screw it, I'm going to find a new profession. You know, but you kind of went the opposite way. Well, confidence appeared. Yeah. I was sort of in the right place at the right time. Opportunity was knocking. I don't know that I would have gone back. Had Hoffa not disappeared, I don't know if I would have stayed with that. But when Hoffa disappeared, I it was like going to school learning to be a brain surgeon and then, you know, not doing your first bra- big brain surgery. I mean, I, this was brain surgery. When Hoffa disappeared, this was brain surgery. And I, basically, the information I received on Hoffa, I, I went with NBC News, you know, long story. I, I wound up with NBC, and the information I got my first day on a job at NBC from a source, secret source, is basically the information I have pursued since, since, um, since the murder. And that was like about three, four, maybe even five days after Hoffa's period. There was a period of Hoffa's period on July 30th, 1975, but it wasn't announced until August 1st or 2nd or something like that. And then Quitney and I went looking for Hoffa up in Eagle River. And then after that experience, he went back to New York to take all the grief he was going to get for that. Then I wound up going to Detroit. Days after Hoffa's disappearance, with little more than a couple dollars in his pocket, Dan hopped on a plane, flew to Michigan, and hitchhiked to the restaurant where Hoffa was last seen alive. Inside, he ran into NBC reporter Irving Levine and his producer Bob Toombs. And wound up at the Red Fox restaurant where Hoffa was last seen, and then I ran into Irving R. Levine, who was the great reporter for NBC. And Irving Levine was the one who hired me, really, to handle the NBC's investigation of the Hoffa disappearance and immediate aftermath of the crime. I guess his producer, Bob Toombs, was Bob his Toombs, name? yeah, great. They were quite impressed with your knowledge on Hoffa. Well, there weren't a lot of us out around at that time who really knew very much about this. It was just a handful of us who, who knew things. And uh, I was more than happy to be used. Yeah. You know, that was a big break for me. You did some work with NBC mm-hmm. on, on Hoffa, right? Using I was NBC. I was with NBC for two weeks in Detroit, and then I think and then they sent me to New York. And is that about the time you started covering Roland McMaster and his goons? I squad? covered McMaster from day one. Like I said, the, the the information I received on day one from NBC was the information I pursued since that was the information on Roland McMaster. I, I, I believe then and I believe now that Roland McMaster was was very important in this in this murder conspiracy and the events leading up to it. Uh, he was the uh, secretary treasurer of the Teamsters, or what was his position? Do At that know? time, he was an international organizer. He was secretary treasurer of the local union at one time. And then he was an administrative assistant. He tried to take over the union, but Hoffa blocked him, the local union. He never had an office on the international level other than as an organizer, international organizer. But he was, you know, McMaster, along with Fitzsimmons and Dave Johnson, were, you know, the closest guys to Hoffa on during his rise to power in Detroit. It was those four guys, 
Hoffa, Fitzsimmons, Dave Johnson, and Ronald McMaster, who really made the teams as what they were in Detroit. I, I had a grudging respect for McMaster. I, I got to know him. I spent some time with him. We didn't like each other, but but I was genuinely scared of him. I really was. I was genuinely scared. Genuinely scared of him. Tough, tough guy. Very, very tough guy. Was he a Michigan guy, a Detroit guy? Mm-hmm. Lived. He had a farm outside of Detroit. A horse farm, right? Horse farm. Yeah. In 1976, Dan traveled to Indianapolis to interview Don Davis, a violent explosives expert who was working for Roland McMaster. He went to dinner with Davis and Davis's lawyer, Lauren Comstock. While Davis went to take a bathroom break, Lauren looked at Dan and let him know his life was in danger. He only did this after noticing his college ring. The two of them were members of the same fraternity. When I had the talk, the guy gave me the talk, fraternity brother, my fraternity (laughs) brother gave me the talk. That was really quite a story. I was lucky. I think I was supposed to be, I think I was supposed to be really dealt with that night firmly. I mean, I had confirmation that somebody had, was at my motel. Uh, this guy, I was there interviewing a guy who had worked for McMaster and who had been, I did not know this, but he had, he was, a, his name was Don Davis. He was known as a bomber, an explosives expert, did a lot of dirty work for McMaster and for the Teamsters. And I thought there was something that had happened that he might have been innocent of. So I went up there and I talked to him and he proved to me that he was innocent. He he and I kind of got along, especially since his attorney and I were fraternity brothers, different schools. But the attorney was kind of cold to me when he saw the ring on my finger, saw my college ring on my finger, and he saw the, uh, the Greek letters for our fraternity. He really warmed up to me and, and then he ended up giving me the talk later that night telling me basically what I could and could not do with any expectation of staying in one piece you know I was he, 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 I was frightened that night but I got out of there and um, thanks to him I thought I thought he kind of tipped me off and uh, and uh, I've, been, I've been in touch with him since then yeah, I've been in touch with him since then and you said in your memoirs that you know you're, you left your hotel, your stuff in your hotel. <laughs> you figured it wasn't worth going back there. To no, pick I, up I, your I had like right? a sport coat in there or yeah. something. I didn't have much. No, I I called the hotel. And that's why they said there were people oh. had been asking for me. Uninvited. And nobody guests. knew I was there. Nobody knew I was there. And when you're driving away, you say you never felt so alive. You know, <laughs> it I was mean, like, it was like an early spring, and I remember driving away. It was like it was the middle of the night, a middle or early morning. It was like. 233 o'clock in the morning and I was out on I-70 driving east back towards Washington I ended up going to Columbus and, and ended up crashing with at a friend's place at a fraternity brother's place for a couple of days before I went back east when you said you never felt so alive was it almost like an adre- like a rush well, I thought I was gonna I thought I was like I said I thought I was gonna really be handled that night and yeah. you know I it was getting out of a situation like that is yeah, I guess there's an adrenaline rush to getting out of a situation like that. I was wondering if I could go back to McMaster for sure. a minute. He came up with, was it local 299 in mm-hmm. Detroit? He had this basically what was amounted to a goon squad, but he gave it like right. a fancy name, like a task force or something right. like that. Or right, it was, it was authorized by re- resolution in, uh, at the 1971 Teamsters Convention. This special commodities division 
which was going to be organizing the unorganized, and it was going to be going to be very proactive and you know getting new members in the Teamsters unit. Turned out to be just a shakedown operation for trucks, truckers involved in the steel hauling industry in particular. And so McMaster had turned this goon squad, which was about I think 32 guys. He he turned it into an operation against Hoffa. Before Hoffa disappeared, there were a whole bunch of acts of violence in Local 299, bombings, beatings, shootings, general sabotage. My investigation, and, and right up until 10 days before Hoffa disappeared, there was a bombing of Dick Fitzsimmons' Cadillac, his union car, uh, outside of a bar near Tiger Stadium. That was Frank's sons, right? Yeah. Nobody was hurt, and I think it was, but it was two of McMaster's guys who did that. I thought that uh, McMaster would then have something to do with Hoffa's disappearance 20 days later. I'm still convinced that I think it's more than likely that Hoffa was murdered on his property. And I think it was very likely that Hoffa, excuse me, that McMaster had played an important role in the disposal of Hoffa's body. I think it was McMaster who arranged for the the 55-gallon drum that was loaded onto a gateway transportation truck which shipped Hoffa back to New Jersey. To Brother Moscato's dump. Brother Phil Moscato, a loan shark, member of the Genovese crime family, and owner of a huge landfill in New Jersey, which many people believe was the final resting place of Jimmy Hoffa's body. To, to Brother Moscato's dump, yeah, although I think it's possible that the body was moved from there. There was a guy who was an informant who started talking, named Ralph Picardo. He became the top informant on the Hoffa case. And I think Moscato and the others, I spent some time with Moscato and interviewed him exclusively on tape. And he basically told me that he and Sal Bergoglio, the person I think killed Jimmy Hoffa, Salvador Bergoglio, who was one of Tony Provenzano's men out of New Jersey, out of Union City, New Jersey. Tony Pro was a pretty infamous labor racketeer, mafia guy, Genovese guy who had been very close to Hoffa for many years, and then the two had a falling out while they were in prison together. Tony Pro was one of the two people that Hoffa was alleged to have been meeting on the day he disappeared. Supposedly, according to law enforcement, neither Provenzano nor his brother-in-law, Tony Giacalone, who was a Detroit Mafia guy, showed up for the meeting. I believe, based on information I received from Donovan Wells, who was very close to McMaster, and Moscato, who corroborated what Wells had said, that Tony Provenzano was in Detroit the night before and was possibly a witness to the murder the following day. But it was Sal Bergoglio, who was Provenzano's top lieutenant, who actually, in my opinion, who did the job on uh, Hoffa. The others in the conspiracy were allegedly his brother Gabe Bergoglio and then Tommy and Stevie Andretta. And I'm the only person in the world who's interviewed all of those guys all at the same time. What's that like when you're sitting across the table from a, a stone-cold killer and not in the setting of visiting someone in prison? You know, these guys are free at the time. They were free walking around in society. So I, was, I was just thrilled. I was thrilled to be there. I didn't think I was going to be hurt that day or anything. I mean, I, I was a little intimidated. They said, come on, have lunch with us. I said, where are we going? They said, we're going across the street. And we went down into a garage and we got into a car. I said, I thought we were going across the street. They said, oh, we thought we'd drive over. We got into Bergoglio's car. I got in the backseat of Bergoglio's car. But the rest of the day was really just, I was thrilled. I mean, I was thrilled to be there. I mean, I knew this case very well, so my questions really penetrated them. And again, the government's never gotten anything out of them but the fifth. Sal Bergoglio has been murdered. 
and so that interview is exclusive. And I spoke to Sal another three times, I guess, after that initial interview. I, I talked to him about a month before his murder, and clearly he was feeling the pressure from the government where they were. He had he was under indictment for the murder of another union rival. And again, I think the mob was concerned that he was getting ready to flip. I don't know whether that's true or not, but. Again, they didn't want to take a chance. Just like Alan Dorfman, they didn't want to take a chance. Yeah. So they they whacked him. The law caught up with Hoffa in the 60s, I believe, and what kind of crimes was he charged with? Hoffa was, he was pretty evasive. They had charged him with a number of things, all of which he escaped, everything from wiretapping to extortion. There was a case, the Tesla case, which was uh, an ex- another extortion case, which was in Nashville. And... It was really a low-level case, and Hoffa wasn't really looking at really... I mean, he probably could have gotten out of it. Even with a conviction, he probably could have walked on this thing, or not certainly not done more than 18 months. But he felt compelled to tamper with the jury. And so he fixed the jury. There was a hung jury in the case, and he, he was charged with jury tampering. And that he was convicted on that. That, that uh, sent him to jail for, I guess, eight years. I guess he was sentenced to eight years for that. And then that summer of 64, he was convicted again on pension fraud in Chicago. And I think they put another five years on him for that. So he was looking at a, quite a stretch in prison. And then he, we went in on March, in March of 1967, and then again, Nixon commuted his sentence with the restrictions that he stay out of the union politics. That happened in July, excuse me, January, uh, December of 1971. So he was in prison for a little over four and a half years. And was it Lewisburg? He was at Lewisburg, yeah. Was he doing what you would consider a hard time there, or was it like... I'd say he was doing hard time, yeah. I mean, it's not Atlanta. It's not like Joliet. It's not like some of these really rock-hard maximum security prisons, but it, it was a tough prison. How had he tried to tamper with the jury? Did he try to pay someone off, have a member of the jury intimidated? Or? I don't remember all the exact details, but mm-hmm. it was discovered by a guy named Grady Parton, who was his doorkeeper. Ed Parton was... Uh, Teamster official from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Hoffa trusted him because he assumed that uh, Parton was controlled by Marcello. Parton was also approached by Hoffa to kill Bobby Kennedy. Wanted to kill Bobby Kennedy. Wanted to bomb his home with plastic explosives. Parton refused, and uh, he ended up calling the government saying he wanted to flip and turn state's evidence. So they kept him in abeyance, and he they brought him out as a key witness, as their key witness, I think, in the rebuttal part, phase of the case, where they'd have to reveal him in a witness list. He was a surprise witness who walked into the courtroom, and his testimony is the testimony that sent Hoffa to jail. So it was pretty damning, huh? Oh, it was, yeah, I mean... Parton was right there while the jury tampering was going on. Robert Kennedy, I understand he headed, was it the Rackets Committee hearings or something like that? Was there was it? something called what the uh, Senate Rackets Committee, the McClellan mm-hmm. Committee, mm-hmm. which ran from 1957 to 60, I guess, and he was chief counsel of the committee. John McClellan was from from Arkansas, was the chair. Uh, Kennedy's brother, John Kennedy, was uh, a junior senator from Massachusetts at the time. He served on the committee as well. In 1960, John Kennedy ran for ran for president. While he was a member of the committee, uh, Bob Kennedy was his campaign manager. Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon, who was the mob's favorite, Jimmy Hoffa's favorite. And when John Kennedy won, he appointed his brother Bob Kennedy as attorney general. 
of the United States, and as I'm fond of saying, if, if Bob Kennedy was eating mafia guys for breakfast during his days as chief counsel of the Senate Rackets Committee, he was eating them for lunch and dinner, too, when he became attorney general. Because Bobby Kennedy, to all intents and purposes, is probably the greatest crime fighter this country's ever had, in my opinion. As far as going after the mafia, you hear a lot of stories about, oh, the Kennedys were mobbed up and everything. It's not true. Totally untrue. They had no greater... The Mafia had no greater enemies than the Kennedys. And the Kennedys really went after him, and I think that's the reason why the mob killed John Kennedy. I think the mob killed John Kennedy. I think it was Jimmy Hoffa, Carlos Marcello, and uh, another mob guy named Santo Traficante, who was the Mafia boss of Tampa, Florida. I was the first one to put that together in my book, The Hoffa Wars, which came out in 78, and the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations a year after my book came out said in his final report that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani had motive, means, and opportunity to have this murder done to the president. And the chief counsel of the committee, Bob Blakey, probably the world's expert on organized crime, said the mob did it. It's a historical fact. And again, I was the first one to say it. And I, to this day, here 40 years later, I stand by that, that conclusion I made in the Hoffa Wars. Trafficante, he was a major uh, heroin trafficker, is that right? Well, drugs, a lot of drugs, a lot of gambling. He had major connections in Cuba. He was very close to Batista. Castro threw him in jail. And again, this was in the middle of the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. I think Hoffa was probably the original liaison in the early part of those plots. Traficante, when he was released from prison, wound up participating in with Sam Giancana from Chicago, Johnny Roselli from Chicago. Carlos Marcelo was also into drugs as well, and he had been thrown out of out of Cuba as well. So the CIA's relationship with the mafia during that time is well documented, but somehow still, when I talk to someone out loud about it, I feel like they're going to look at me as some kind of wacky conspiracy theorist or something. Like not that. on the CIA mafia plus to kill Castro, and really not on the CIA's role in the Iran Contra. Uh, situation that occurred in the Reagan administration when Reagan was secretly selling arms to Iran and then diverting the profits from those sales to a secret war against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Again, that, that was a situation where drugs were involved and organized crime activity. And I wrote a book about Reagan and the mob as well. So I was wondering if I could go back to your time working with NBC. Sure. You're, you're investigating McMaster all along. At one point, they kind of lost interest in the McMaster and his goon squad. Is that right? Well, television network is, you know, they're interested in something until it goes cold. And once it goes cold, they're not... They sort of have to move on. They've got, to sh- they've got shows they got to get out. The McMaster Goon Squad story was running cold. They took a chance on a tip that I had received that I did not vouch for, but they took a chance on it. They sent somebody else to do the job, a guy who was married and had a family and was a little more reluctant than I would have been to go into this area. I would have gone into the area. He didn't. And as a consequence, the conclusion was nothing was there. I still, my source insisted something was there, and I wish they had sent me on that trip instead of him. And again, that was a McMaster operation. The TV business has a really short attention span. Well, of course. To, it's a money-making operation. Yeah, so It's not exactly long-form journalism, I guess, is right? I mean, well, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of great investigative journalism done by, you know, the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the New York Times or on TV, you know, NBC, CBS, 
ABC, CNN, uh, you know, they do some good work. If I understand right from your uh, memoirs, NBC, they offered to keep, they kind of offered you a job, right? They offered, yeah, they still offered keep you around. Yeah, I was working for, I was working for some hot, hot shot guys there. I was working for Gordon Manning, who had just come over from CBS. He was Walter Cronkite's executive producer, and Stan Hope Gould, who was the head of NBC's investigative unit. In fact, he was the one who gave me the handle Gorilla Rider. And he didn't mean it as a as a compliment. He was basically saying, he was kind of giving me some criticism, saying, oh, you're that gorilla writer. And I heard the way he said it, and I didn't know exactly how to take it. And I think I even said, how do you mean that? And he said, well, you're a reporter who takes sides. He says, I'm kind of from the school where we stay objective. And I said, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I'm very objective when it comes to information, you know, documentation. When it comes to the Teamsters Union, do I support the mafia or do I support the rank and file reform movement within the Teamsters Union? To me, there's I will take sides. I have, and so any investigation I've done, you know, ultimately I take sides. It's kind of hard to be objective when you have the, I agree. Uh, when you have the reformers of the Teamsters on one side and then, you know, what's well, to be objective? Yeah, what's yeah. to be objective? Yeah. I think they offered you some kind of job and you parted ways with them instead because you were more interested in pursuing the. Well, McMaster I thought I was program. really onto something on this McMaster thing. I really did. I thought I was going to solve There was a big reward up for it. Really, I really thought that I was going to solve this murder. You know, to this day, I still think I'm going to do it. I guess any regrets over that decision? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I. It's not like this is all I've done with my life. I've written nine books, yeah. you know, only one on Hoffa and the Teamsters. But, you know, I continue to be, I, I, again, I'm fond of saying that I am Ahab and the Hoffa case is my white way. Yeah. Because whenever there's a break in the Hoffa case or somebody's starting a new dig or anything, the media comes right to me. I'm the go-to guy on this thing. And what about that movie coming out about Hoffa? Of course, they must have hired Dan as the main consultant, right? You know, there's a movie coming out that's not based on my work. It's based on a one-source book by somebody else. And, Charles uh, Brandt, you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. You know, what can I say? You know, he's... They picked him. It's just, I, I just can't believe that they, they're giving this guy everything. And those of us... You know, who really been in the weeds on this thing from the beginning, you know, are walking away empty handed. I just can't believe it. I mean, they were, Charlie Brandt's very nice to me in his book. Yeah. Frank Sheeran says some complimentary things about me. I interviewed Sheeran back in 1977 or 78. Mm-hmm. He didn't confess anything to me. Moscato did. Yeah. Phil Moscato did. And, and he told me flat out Sheeran had absolutely nothing to do with the murder of Jimmy Hall. Now, I think that. And I implicated Sheeran in the, in the murder conspiracy in the Hoffa Wars in 1978. Brandt's book came out 26 years later. And I still say that Sheeran has con- confessed, Sheeran confessed to a crime he did not commit because he couldn't sell his book otherwise. Yeah. And so, um, so Martin Scorsese, who's directing the film, The Irishman, Robert De Niro, who bought the rights, to the book is playing Frank Sheeran. Al Pacino is playing Jimmy Hoffa. Joe Pesci is playing Russell Buffalino, probably put the contract out on Hoffa. I think Carvey Keitel is playing um, Angela Bruno, who got whacked in 1980. It's going to be quite a, an event in movie history. It's going to probably be one of the biggest movies of the year. But yet they're buying Frank Sheeran's version of events, hook, line, and sinker. Well, they're right. They're money, they're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's any 
law that says they have to tell the truth. I mean, this is Hollywood. They're going to do what's going to be, a, I'm sure, a great film. Probably not very historically accurate. I'm sure it'll be entertaining, though. Oh, it's got to be. I mean, with that cast. Yeah. Uh, Steve Zalen, who wrote, who got an Oscar for uh, Schindler's List, has written a screenplay. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I, I don't plan to be silent while this is going on. I'm going to let them make their move, and then I'll make mine. And I'm not alone here. I, I have a lot of friends in this, in this thing. So, yeah. we will, we will take the opportunity to make an issue out of the Hoffa case when this thing comes out. But we're going to let them make their move, and, and then we'll make ours. Can I talk about the the murder itself in a little more detail? Sure. Ask you about, and, and then I'll let you off the hook for now. So the day that he disappeared, July thirtieth, nineteen seventy five. He's at the Red Fox restaurant. He's waiting to meet with Tony Pro and Tony Jackaloni. Tony Jackaloni. The, Actually, there was a third guy, but we don't talk about. Oh, okay. a guy named Lenny Schultz who was supposed to be there too. Oh, is that right? Okay, all right. But I we don't talk about. It. He gets initially stood up by. Well, I know they never showed up, basically. But he said he he called he called a friend of his, Louis Lynn. Said Jacqueline never showed up. I'm coming out there. And then he had also called at home, apparently talked to his wife to see whether Jacqueline had called out there. See, there was a lot of personal history here. You know, Jacqueline's brother, Vito Jacqueline, who I also think was involved in this, he had been visiting Hoffa out at his farm, out at his house, out in Lake Orion, Michigan. And see, Vito Jacqueline, Tony Jack's brother, had an affair with Joe Hoffa, Hoffa's wife, years earlier. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Jackaloni and his brother, Tony Jackaloni, was having an affair with Chucky O'Brien's mother, Chucky O'Brien being the foster son, who's often thought to have been driving the car, which took Hoffa to the scene of his death. So there's, a, there's all kinds of history here among all of these people. But basically what I think happened was I think Hoff is picked up. I think that Vito Giacalone's in the car. I think Frank Sheeran's in the car. I think I think Hoffa would have gotten into the car with Frank Sheeran. He would have. I think that I think that was Sheeran's role was to get Hoff in there. Was Chuck O'Brien in a different car following behind? Or? I don't know. Again it's the car thing if there's there's some Scott Bernstein and Al Prophet did a move did a documentary about this and and I think they were into multiple cars there, which is very possible. It's very possible there could have been more than one car there to pick them up, or there had been one car, you know, following behind. Poff is then driven to a private residence where he's murdered by Sal Bergoglio, and then he's Act Three. It's like a three-act drama with different characters in each act. In Act Three, he. He's stuffed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and shipped to an unknown destination. Again, that information was coming from Ralph Picardo. When they said to him, where do you think they would have taken him if they brought him back to Jersey? He said, they, you know, the place we dumped bodies was Moscato's dump. See, I thought that in the Hoff Wars, I, I had a mob guy who told me that Hoffa's body was crushed and smelted. So, gateway... Roland McMaster's alibi for the day Hoffa disappeared was that he was with Gateway executives in Gary, Indiana, along with his brother-in-law, Stan Barr, who was the head of the Gateway terminal in Detroit. 
I just think it's more the coincidence is that we've got Gateway hanging all over McMaster and Bar that day, and it's a Gateway truck that winds up a shipping Hoffa's body across uh, country. And Hoffa's number one goon was a driver for Gateway, Jim Shaw, and who was one of the guys who bombed Dick Fitzsimmons' car 10 days before Hoffa disappeared and was involved with the 299 violence. He was a member of the goon squad, the 32-member task force, as you called it. I was doing a story about a crooked judge, and I saw that the payoff man in the judge was alleged to have been a guy named Phil Moscato. Jeez, I know who this guy is. So I called Moscato up to see if I could talk to him. So I did. He seemed very nice. I went up. Tape recorder was on on the table. And I said, uh, we talked about the crooked judge and everything else. And then I said, you know, the first time I heard about you was during the Hoffa case. He started... He goes, yeah, that was something. He says, I was at the grand jury. I didn't realize that he had been he had been at the grand jury the day the Bergulios and the Adretas and McMaster all were called on December 4th, 1975. That was a big day. And that was all basically, that was all based on Ralph Picardo's information. Moscato started telling me, you know, kind of what happened, and I kind of continued asking him questions, and he told me that he, they had backed the truck up at his dump, and he and Sal Bergulio buried, buried off at the dump. I mean, I had a tape recorder on, he saw what I was doing. I thought he had a little buyer's remorse later on in the day, and there's a couple of things going on right now. I mean, he, he died. I never pushed him too hard on it. I, I regret that. I should have moved there. I should have moved where he was. <laughs> moved into his house with him and his wife, maybe. Really, I should have. Yeah. I should have done whatever was necessary to get him to talk, but I didn't want to put too much pressure on him because, like I said, I sensed buyer's remorse that he told me what he had told me, as it was. Well, you were pretty patient with him. You waited all day of hanging out with him at his house, right? That was I mean, the other one. That oh. was that was years later. That was at the other interview where he had asked me to come up there, and he called me, invited me up. And then he didn't, you know, he, he, you know, his wife, I don't know if I wrote this, but we were sitting there and I said, you know, I'm here. You know, we both know why I'm here, you know, what we, we want to talk about. So he says, well, let me tell you that his wife sort of clears her throat. And I go, well, what's wrong? I said, why are you messing with me? She says, I know what you're going to get out of this. What's he going to get out of this? I go, what do you want? What do you want? The sky's the limit on this thing. But he never wanted money or anything like that. For some reason, he just wanted me to know. I think he might have even been off-put by the Sharon thing, where he really made quite a point of the fact that Sharon had absolutely nothing to do with this. But he wouldn't confirm that Sal Vigulia was the actual killer, even though Sal was his best friend. And even though Sal was long dead? Sal was long dead. But he told me, he said, you know, Picardo basically had it right. That's a pretty tall, that's a pretty bold statement for him to make. Didn't Phil Moscato, when he was telling you these things, giving you an admission, didn't he kind of couch it by saying, well, they say that this happened and they say that this happened, but it was... But again, they weren't saying that. Yeah. he was saying, they weren't saying. Yeah. I mean, I I hear what you're saying, but that's not what they were saying. Nobody, I I didn't hear anyone say, we pulled up to the truck at the dump and they pulled out his body and cell and I buried the body. I don't know anybody who said, I've got all the FBI reports on it. Nobody was saying that. This is Moscato telling me something. And then he said, I think I've already told you what happened. When, when, when uh, uh, what's his name, Zarelli? Zarelli's kid, Joe Zarelli's kid, who was once the boss of the Detroit Mafia, 
when he said that he knew where Hoffa's body was, I called Moscato up and I said, what, what do you think about this? He goes, Dan, I think I've already told you what happened. That's what he said to me. He kind of scolded me. I, you know, I've already told you what happened. Yeah. That impressed me when he said that. You'd be shocked how many people are trying to get my tapes right now, Moscato. I'm being approached from all over the place right now from production companies who want nothing but my tapes. I imagine. Well, not for a good purpose. Uh, they, they view me as a post possible saboteur to this movie. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I am. <laughs> Why, but just reporting the fact? Well, I don't, I don't know that Scorsese and De Niro are going to share my enthusiasm for exposing the facts. I guess they're already invested in, you know... $125 million? Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a big investment. Yeah. So the day that Hoffa died, before he was picked up, do you have any idea about how long he was kept waiting, just sitting around there at the restaurant? Hard to say. I would assume he called... The meeting was it for two, I guess. Mm-hmm. He was he made his call at two thirty. I would say I would I was imagine shortly thereafter. So when the Andretta brothers went to talk to Ralph Picardo in prison, big moment. Yeah, how were the Andrettas involved though? That's kind of unclear to me. The thought has always been that Tommy Andretta was involved in the in the disposal of the body. Maybe they kind of have big mouths, right? If they went and told Ralph about it, I mean, because well, Stevie Ralph was the one who talked. I don't, think, I don't think Stevie was in Detroit that day. I think he was. I think he was in New Jersey. I think he was Tony Pro's alibi. I think Tony Pro was in Detroit and Steve was in, in Union City. When I interviewed Steve, he told me the story about how they were trying to put all this pressure on him to flip and turn state's evidence, or at least tell what he knows. And when he took the fifth, they they gave immunity, and we still refused to testify. They threw him in jail for contempt. So he did what. I don't, know much, I don't know if he did six months or what. In Milan State Penitentiary up there, he was released, and they bought him a new Cadillac and everything else. So. The government? Oh, oh, the mafia did? <laughs> Not the government, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Tony Provenzano's yeah. guys. Oh, wow. Just for uh, keeping his mouth shut and refusing to testify, huh? What's the strength of the Teamsters today compared to back then? Uh, you know, unions have taken a thumping. You know, you know I think the public has been conned to believe that Unions are bad, and that, uh, and, and you know, stuff about the Hoffa and the Teamsters and everything else has sort of perpetuated that myth. You know, to me, unions are the, the great institution of all great societies. I mean, it's uh, they're they're out there about fairness. I think it. I mean, again, when you look at a great union like the United Auto Workers Union, and what a great man like Walter Ruther did for it. Um, you know, any number of unions like that who of guys who had to come up in a rough and tumble time but they were you know they were people who did what was necessary for their workers and uh, without making packs with the mafia like Hoffa did so what happens with the unions being diminished is that the public I mean when when union workers get a raise everybody gets a raise I mean it lifts all of society yeah. They talk about now that, oh, you know, wages aren't going up. Well, I think one of the reasons why wages aren't going up is because there's not unions out there insisting on greater wages for their workers. And also there's, you know, there hasn't been an increase in the minimum wage in a long time either. There's just no pressure out there on behalf of the middle class. And unions, I think, were always out there fighting for the middle class people. So so they've been diminished. Will they come back? I don't know. I, I'd like to see more 
companies start profit sharing with their workers, you know, so that they can get a bigger piece of the action, you know, really have a stake in the companies for which they work. You know, I'd like to see if, they, if we want to have capitalism, let's let everybody participate in capitalism. Yeah. So. Is there still some form or fashion of the mafia in existence today? Oh, very strong. God, I just said gone offshore, high tech, and online. I mean, they're, they're out there. I mean, as long as you can make a bet on a pro football game, and they still control the outlaw line. Yeah. <clears throat> on all sports, the mafia very much exists. In your time, when you're coming up, there are these these guys, suits and ties, right? The omnipresent figures. Well, these guys used to be, you know, knuckle draggers. These guys used to be eighth grade dropouts. Now they're Harvard MBAs and Wharton grads. I mean, these are these are so smart guys who have taken over the world of organized crime. Again, they're they're yeah. out outside the country, outside the grasp of U.S. law. Yeah. So, I tell you what, you've got to watch this uh, Supreme Court decision that's coming. There were arg- arguments were, I think, on December 4th over Chris Christie's case against uh, the NCAA at L. This is going to be a very significant case depending on how the Supremes rule on this because this basically could legalize sports gambling throughout the country. Not just It wouldn't just be available at, like, Nevada. This could be everywhere. What the NFL wants to do is the NFL is tired of seeing its brand, seeing others profit from their brand uh, in, the, in the world of gambling. So the NFL owners want to control the gambling themselves, and they're basically creating sports books in order to do that. I, I had one NFL owner told me when I did my book on the NFL and the mob that the NFL owners want they wanted one day to see kiosks in the stadiums where you could go to a, like a paramutual window or whatever and make a bet on whatever game you're watching and whatever game is playing simultaneously in the league or whatever game is going to be playing tomorrow or next week or whatever. They want to control the gambling. And that would take a lot of power away from organized crime. Oh, right? no. I, to the contrary. To the power, if, you, if you're going to have legalized gambling, you're going to have the state involvement in it. You're going to have taxation, you're going to have all kinds of regulation, you're going to have all kinds of people taking taking bites out of profit. You know, look at a lottery, you pay, you know, $2 for a lottery ticket for, what, a $55 million to one chance to win the big prize. You know, almost all that money goes to some state operation where when the mafia is running something, you go to Charlie the Bookie, the friendly local bookmaker at the corner bar, and he makes you put up $11 to win 10 takes a 10% commission on the losing Betsy books. That's why I say when you bet with a bookmaker, you wind up a piece of your losing bet's going to end up in the pocket of some mafia guy. The mafia, don't think for a second they don't exist. They do. They exist in spades. It's just we're not seeing them so much because you can't have, can't have organized crime without political corruption. These guys are going to be out there corrupting. And I'll tell you, some law enforcement guy isn't going to take a payoff for some whacked-out Jamaican who's just set up some drug operation. I mean, if a judge or a prosecutor or a cop is going to take the payoff from the guy he's been doing business with for years, he's going to be taking it from the Italian-Sicilian mafia guy. Can I ask you one more question sure. about the Hoffa murder? What, what was the main driving motive behind taking him out? Was I think it? Hoffa was talking a lot. I think he was... I think Hoffa was talking to grand juries, was talking to investigating committees here in Washington, directly or indirectly. There was the, while all the, the, what Hoffa died in the midst of 
the church committee hearings, which were investigating the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro, which evolved into the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And if you look at Hoffa's last interview that he did, which was published in Playboy, about a month before he was murdered, he's obsessed with the JFK murder. Now, he's saying that the CIA did it, which is crazy. He's embracing Jim Garrison, who was the nutty, corrupt prosecutor from Carlos Marcello land. He was a stooge for Carlos Marcello. You know, the hero and the misunderstood visionary in Oliver Stone's stupid movie, JFK. I mean, it was a great movie. It's this, it, it, You know, essentially Scorsese's homage to Oliver Stone is going to be The Irishman. But, you know, JFK was actually a pretty good film. It's just, it just was so historically corrupt. This is that, purely entertainment. And that's what Scorsese and De Niro are going to claim, too. They're going to say, hey, 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 you know, it's a movie. Just entertaining, and when and when Scorsese and De Niro say that Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa, well, I don't think anybody's going to really want to split hairs as to whether it was Frank Sheeran or Sal Bergoglio did the job. I don't think they really care. They just want to see it dramatized. And again, I'm sure that Scorsese and De Niro are going to do a great job in doing this movie. I'll be in line to see it. In fact, I think I'll probably be asked by several people to review it, which I'll be happy to do. Did Phil still own the dump at the time you started talking to him? No. There was an EPA Superfund. It was a Superfund site. I think they closed him down at 77. He had moved on to other things. He was a pretty successful businessman, right? Oh, yeah. I understand McMaster's farm was searched by law enforcement. That's where I think Hoffa was killed. Yeah, that's where you think he was killed. But as far as looking for his body, do you know if Phil Moscato's dump was ever searched? By it was, but I mean, this, the dump was huge. I mean, they, they, didn't have a, they didn't have a specific spot for it. Yeah. So they were pretty much... There was a cursory search. I think they claimed that they were looking for the body of a murdered loan shark, when in fact they were looking for Hoffa. Was that just kind of a cover story to keep the media away, or...? I think that was to justify the search warrant. I guess that's it for now. You ready to eat? Sure. We had the variety plate, beef, chicken, shrimp, fried rice, and an egg roll. Thanks to Dan Maldea, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music for this podcast. Kevin's website is incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H. Make sure you check out Dan's memoirs, Confessions of a Gorilla Writer, Adventures in the Jungles of Crime, Politics, and Journalism. Dan's latest book is Hollywood Confidential, a true story of wiretapping, friendship, and betrayal. It's about Anthony Pelicano, the private investigator to the stars who went rogue, to put it lightly. 